welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Now I'd like to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word as we move into the series that we've been involved in in 1 John chapter 2. We're now in 1 John chapter 2 and we'll be covering verses 3 to 6. Would you hear with me the Word of God? John said, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's clearly clearly given word. May we know that we know him as we hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, let me ask you as a professing Christian, have you ever wondered whether you're truly saved? Have you ever wondered whether you're truly saved. I would say as a pastor and somebody, I've walked with the Lord over 40 years and pastored 30 of those, I would say that I've found that most sincere believers have at one point or another in their Christian life wondered if they were truly saved. In fact, I have more than once. People hear a statement like that and they, some of them are shocked because that's not really a category or a question we ask a lot today because we assume so much about people's... But believe it or not, it's actually a biblical question to ask. It is encouraged as a question one should ask if they're in the faith. Multiple times in the New Testament, we're told to consider our lives and to consider whether we really have truly saving faith. One of those places is 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where Paul told an entire church to take a spiritual inventory. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So it's a biblical question, but it's not a question we ask these days, at least in our American Christian experience. See if you don't agree. I mean, in our age, we, we kind of have an age of what we, we would call, or I would call, unquestioned Christianity. Evidence or fact that a person's outward claim to Christ is a true relationship with Christ. Think about that. We're an independent culture. We, we give people, we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We now have a culture that never doubts anybody. I mean, it's, it's a culture of individual rights and if I believe it, it's true. If I say it, it's true. And we never, ever step over the boundary lines. I mean, think about it for a minute or two. And 
How are we accustomed to accept that a person is a Christian in our modern Christian culture here in America? How do you, you how are you accustomed to know that? Well, for some, it can be as simple as, well, they go to a Christian church. Therefore, they must be Christian. Or they say they're a Christian. I mean, that's the bottom line that we give to just about anybody. If, if a person says they're a Christian, we have to honor that statement. Now, that's true in a sense, but as you're going to find out today, John widens the understanding of that, and he brings a different, a, a, another question to bear. But today, if somebody goes to a Christian church or says they're a Christian, we don't pursue that. We don't uh, argue that. We just accept it. Or maybe they say that at one time, years and years ago, they, they accepted Jesus at a, at a VBS event. And that's it. And that's the, the, the sum total of the, the point at which they hang their whole Christian experience or that when they were a child in the Sunday school class, they, they went through a pray with me prayer or, or a little later on when they were in a youth group, they, they made a decision at a camp experience or, or, or in some kind of evangelistic service and, and everything about the nature of their Christian confidence goes to an event and, and that's all. Some claim, well, I remember I got baptized. And, and that's where it all turns. Or maybe they don't go to a church, but they go to a small group that's part of a church. And, and so they, they have some connection with a Christian community. We accept that, and that's, that's the, the, the proof. In some places where I've lived and been, if you were simply culturally and politically conservative, people assumed you are Christian. If you're pro-life, Christian, big time, that's a, a, a label that gave, gives you a tremendous amount of acceptance. But what I'm point, trying to point out is in our, in our accepting individualized culture, really there is no test that goes any further than that. If a person says they did this or a person says they are that or they go there, we take their word for it. So that I would assume then that all believers are believers then. Don't, don't you assume that from that behavior? Every person that claims to be a believer, according to your theology, must be a believer. But the problem is when you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament from beginning to end, you see that that's not necessary to the case. The Bible brings questions about certain people that profess faith, but they don't seem to possess faith. So professing is not the same as possessing. There are, there are such people, and they're mentioned many times in the epistles of Paul, false believers. What do you do with that? There has to be some reality to that. There has to be some reason why Paul would go into that teaching. In the words of Jesus, talking about the harvest of the, of the last days, he said there, is, there, is, there are wheat fields representing true souls that belong to Christ, but then there are tares. You know what a tare is? It's, it's a weed that looks like wheat. And the only way you can tell it isn't is you have to wait until the, the harvest times come. The har harvest time comes at the end of the growth cycle of wheat, as I understand it, and the head of a tear doesn't have the beads of wheat on it that normal wheat does. But through much of its growing cycle, it looks just like regular wheat. That's why you have to wait till the harvest to tell the difference. Jesus said there are false believers that will grow in the church, and it will be very difficult to distinguish who they are from true believers. Jesus said there's a difference in believers. We have to deal with that. So professing in the New Testament doesn't always mean possessing Christ. 
There are false believers in the teaching of Paul. There were tares in the teaching of Jesus, who also in Matthew 7 said, you may have said many things or done many things, but depart from me, I never knew you. There's a saving relationship. So this is a big factor in our modern Christian experience, and it was a big factor in John's time. And we just have an unquestioned Christianity that it's seldom thought of. And I found that when people, when, over the years, when people have talked to me about doubting their salvation, I found that the serious Christians ask that question, the ones that are saved. Then there's others that I kind of looking at their life and I don't see any match between their life and what they said they believed years ago. The ones that I have questions about, I really wonder if they know the Lord. They never have questions about whether they're Christians. So it's just interesting. Back in the, in the 1500s, uh, a guy named Richard Baxter in 1650 told his congregation, when it comes to the assurance of salvation, many Christians err. Some condemn themselves by mistake while others acquit themselves by mistake. I thought, wow, that's pretty bold. But that's really the question here. And so it was also a question for John's readers. They were wondering because they had begun to see people in their church that raised questions as to whether they truly knew the Lord. And so really John talks about the assurance of what is classic Christianity. How do you know that you know, both in your life and in the life of somebody else? So to approach his teaching in verses three to six, I simply want to talk about two things. There's the battle regarding assurance. And then there's the basis that John gives us here about how assurance is gained. So let's talk first of all about the battle for assurance. First John is what I would call a battle book. I've told, taught you this. It was, it's a battle book written by an old warrior. John had known Jesus for over 60 years. And, uh, he was in the last years of his ministry and he was battling and writing his epistles to define true Christianity. Because after 60 years, the, the early love affair of people with Christ, the church had, 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 had cooled and there was an, a tremendous amount of false teaching that had moved through the churches and also a lot of false living. And so believers were becoming both confused and deceived. And John wrote this epistle to define for his readers what classic Christianity was as, and, and also to expose what I would call contaminated Christianity. I, I told you when we began the series that the word know, the verb or the, the word know, K-N-O-W, is found 40 times in 1 John. So, so it's obviously a, a book about knowing the truth. And if there's a theme verse in 1 John, and it's hard to find one because the, the outline's really confusing, but if there is a theme verse, most Bible scholars think it's 1 John 5, 13, where John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if that was his purpose, he wanted to get these confused Christians and give them enough information to understand not only who a false believer is, but how they can know that they're not false believers and that they will have eternal life. That kind of colors everything he writes in five chapters. Does that make sense? So in chapter two, he, he, he begins to go through this. In fact, when, when you look at 1 John, all five chapters, you see the same three things coming up over and over again because there's three tests that John gave to show what a true believer is like. 
The first test was doctrine. You have to, or do you believe the right truth? Do you believe true truth about Jesus? We already saw that in the first chapter, in the first few verses, where, where he talked about who the true Jesus is. We went through all eight qualities of the true Jesus. So the first test you see coming up over and over again is, are you a true Christian? Well, do you believe the right things? What's your doctrine? The second test is obedience. Are you living in the right way? In other words, are you obeying the commands of Jesus? That's this one, because he talks in verse four about keeping the commands of God. And then the third thing that keeps, keeps coming up is how are your relationships? Are you loving other people in Jesus' name? And that's later on in this passage and all the way through uh, the second chapter and the third chapter. So there's three recurring tasks that John writes and he keeps bringing up. Doctrine, obedience, and relationships. What do you believe? How are you living? And how are you loving others? And so he constantly is asking him in this epistle, how do you pass the test? Do you see these things in your own life as a Christian? And these other people that you're wondering about, are, are they truly Christians or are they false teachers? Now, false teachers were troubling this church. These, the, the false teachers that were in, in, in 1 John's orbit were teachers that believed that they had a certain level of knowledge that made them superior to others. And they disconnected their moral life from what they believed. They were dualists. They believed that as long as you knew the right things, it didn't matter how you lived your life. You didn't have to obey any moral commands. You didn't have to have any sexual morals or anything else as long as you knew these, these things. There was a disconnect between what they knew and how they lived and the commands of God. And so the believers were getting confused. They were taught by these uber-wise people, but they looked at the lifestyle of these uber-wise people and they saw all kinds of immorality. And so they didn't know what to do about it. And so John writes to this, some of these people were so into their new knowledge that they actually separated from the churches and formed their own new churches. And that's in 1 John chapter 2. And John, John has to say in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that all, they all are not of us. And so John said, listen, you, you have to understand that there's true Christians and false Christians, true teachers and false teachers, and he's constantly trying to teach them and warn them about that. Do we have false teachers today in the, in the church worldwide? Absolutely. Do we have some teachers that want to say, based on their superior knowledge, they see things in a, in a, in a deeper way than the church has seen them before? And you don't have to worry about connecting certain of our church morals to, to what you do. Well, one of the most well-known pastors in America just finished a major conference in his church in which he says, based on his understanding of the Bible, it's no longer necessary to connect being a Christian and walking with God with abandoning a homosexual lifestyle. You can disconnect the two. In fact, the more tolerant you are of people in a homosexual lifestyle and the more you make no issue of it in terms of Christianity, the more enlightened and loving you are. Well, thankfully, a huge number of Christians rebelled against that, but a whole, another number of Christians embrace this now. So there's a disconnect between what you believe and what, what morality is. Oh, it's happening today. Make no mistake about it. So the understanding of who a true believer is and who a false believer is, it's a battle today just like it was then. Well, John gives us in 1 John chapter 2... 
a basis of assurance about whether you truly know Jesus. And, it, and he applies that obedience test here. And he says in chapter 2, verse 3, by this, here's a test, here's a sign. We know, you can know, K-N-O-W, without a doubt, that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. So no disconnect there. No disconnecting morals from what you believe. No disconnecting the commandments of Jesus from who you know. So we go now from the battle for assurance to the second part of my message. And here we're going to develop other passages and we will get to chapter two. And and I'll give you the, the development of that. But just hang on. You have to get the big picture. The second thing I want to talk about is then the basis of assurance. How do you know that you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you know that somebody else is a Christian? Well, there are two aspects to this biblically. The first is belief. Now, some of you are going, wow, I'm glad you got to that point because I'm I'm afraid you're starting to teach salvation by works. Absolutely not. And you'll see how this develops. Oh, we are saved by grace through faith. No question about it. What's the basis of assurance? First of all, belief. Ephesians chapter 2. Classic passage. You're probably wondering if I would get to it. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says in in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace, God's unmerited favor applied to your life, you have been saved if you continue to perform all the right duties and fulfill all the commandments. Is that what your weird Bible says? No. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Look at this. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. I'm not teaching salvation by works at all. I'm saying it begins in the point of faith. You're saved by faith. Notice he says you are saved. It it completes the transaction. You're You're saved by the belief you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace was applied to your life. You are saved by faith. You have been saved. Completed event. Now the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you say, how does the saving event happen? Well, Romans 10 gives you a little insight into this. In Romans chapter 10, you can go back to verse 8 actually. What does it say? The word of faith is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The Bible says that when the gospel is brought over your life, there's a marvelous event called the moment of saving faith. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth, having heard that gospel, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You will be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, made in perfect standing before God with Christ's righteousness on your your life. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you're saved by grace through faith when you trust in Jesus Christ. This is why the the Bible says in John 1.12, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those that believe in his name. So that's all there. So it would seem that, how do you know that you're a Christian? Well, the question has a simple answer. 
Who is a Christian? The, the person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who believes that he's God, that he's the Savior, who repents from their sin and asks him, ask him to save them by grace through faith alone, which he's more than able to do because he has paid the price for their sin on the cross and risen from the dead as an affirmation of that. Anyone who believes that and comes before the Lord and asks for salvation is a Christian. In the same sense that anyone who doesn't is not. So we, we come, there's an aspect of assurance in belief. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. But the Bible also teaches that there are instances in which outward faith may not always be the real thing. And this is the difficulty. This is the challenge. This is where professing may not mean possessing in some sense. The Bible seems to teach that outward faith may not always be the real thing, what I would call true saving belief. Now, there's many ways and places in which this is articulated throughout the Gospels and the Epistles. One of the places in the Gospels that it's very clear that it's talked about is the parable of the soils, and you're familiar with this. I preached it when I was going through Luke. I believe it was Luke 6. I can't remember exactly. The parable of the sower. You remember the story. There's a sower scattering seed which falls on four different types of ground. Do you remember? There's hard ground by the, by the path and prevents the seed from sprouting at all. It just bounces right off of it, and the seed becomes nothing more than bird food. Jesus said the birds come down and eat it up, and it's taken away. Then there's stony ground, which has some, some, some soil on top of it, but there's hard pan underneath, and it provides enough soil for the seeds to germinate a little, and they begin to go down a little bit, but because there is no depth to the earth, the, the, the seeds, the plant doesn't take root, and it's withered by the heat of the sun, which is a symbol of persecution and troubles. Then there's other ground that looks good, but it's got thorns that are all around it and weeds and, and the thorns grow up and they choke the life out of the, the plant that begins to grow from that seed. And then there's finally the fourth ground, the good ground, which the Bible says receives a seed. It's the only one of the four that's called good soil, by the way, and it produces much fruit. Fruit is an image of obedience and giving glory to God. So Jesus was asked to explain that parable. And he said, well, the seed is the word of the kingdom. I would call it the gospel. The word of the kingdom is, how do you, how do you come to know the king? Isn't that the word of the kingdom? He said the hard ground represented someone who's hardened by sin. It, they, they hear, but they don't understand the word, and Satan plucks the message away, keeping that hard heart as hard as it was and preventing the word from making any impression. Then the, the ground with, with, it, with the stone underneath it pictures a person who professes delight with the word. They initially receive it with joy, but their heart is not changed, and when trouble and persecution arises, their so-called faith quickly disappears. The thorny ground depicts somebody who receives the word again, initially with joy, but whose heart is full of riches or pleasures or lusts, the thorns of life and the things of this world begin to combine. They take his time and attention away from the Lord. He ends up having no time for the Lord and, and there, there's no solid, enduring life with God. And the, the thorns and the cares of this world grow up and choke the world, the, 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 the seed, and it bears no fruit, the scripture says. Then there's finally the one good ground. That's the one who hears and understands and receives the word. 
and then allows the word to accomplish its result in his life. In other words, begins to respond to the word and obey the word and obey the gospel and live the gospel and obey the commands, as John would put it in 1 John 2. That's the only one of the four, in my opinion, who's truly saved, by the way. A lot of controversy on this passage. You may differ because I think the proof of salvation is the fruit of salvation in that sense. So the reception of God's word is determined by the condition of the heart, and and it, it appears that salvation is more than a superficial hearing of the gospel. Somebody is, who is truly saved will go on to bear the fruit of the gospel. That's the implication of the entire parable. I mean, there's a reason why John the Baptist told his hearers, bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance, remember that? So there seems to be the teaching of true faith producing true fruit. This is why James said in James chapter 2, difficult for some people to hear, but now that you've heard that parable of the gospels, this makes sense. James 2, he says, 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So believing is not always the fullness of the case. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, what's all that saying? Well, I think it's the principle there is that obedience is the only possible proof of true saving faith. You say, how do we prove somebody's a Christian? Well, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior that I just kind of delineated from the word. And do you see the fruit according to the parable of the soils that's being demonstrated in their life? You say, why do you have to look for fruit? As somebody famously once said, it's because you can't see a salvation. You ever think about that? What's a salvation look like? I'll wait. You can tell me. (laughs) You don't know. What's regeneration look like? Picture that. Describe that. Understand that. How do you you describe the miracle of sudden new life emerging in the spirit of a dank, dark, depraved sinner? How do you know that happened? Do you have some kind of x-ray vision, some kind of, some kind of scope that you got online that lets you look into the depths of a person's heart and tell me? No, you can't see a salvation. You see the fruit thereof. And that's the whole point of James. And now you go back to 1 John, and John is saying the same things. By this, we know that we have come to know him. By this, we know the validity of a decision. By this, we put, we put credence with what a person says happened. By this, we know we see that salvation if we keep his commandments. You see it. Now, don't confuse yourself and think that I'm talking about that's how you're saved. That's not how you come to know him. It's evidence that you've come to know him. Do you see the two distinctions? I'm not breaking the whole great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. I'm talking about the evidence of how it's occurred or that it has occurred. I'm not saying if you want to come to know God, you have to obey God. I'm not bringing that that template in. I'm saying that if you've come to know God, it's going to be manifested in the way that you live. And that's what John is teaching here. So there are two aspects to assurance. The first is belief. The second seems to be behavior. Are you following the outline now? What is, is behavior saving? No, it's revealing. And this is 
this is what John is trying to drive home because there are a whole bunch of people that were confused over this issue. Now, now we get to the text. We'll spend the next 10 minutes on this and then come to communion, trust me. Now you can understand what he's trying to get through. He does three things. Number one, he establishes first in verse three, the principle. What's the principle he establishes in verse three? He says, and by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. I'll put it in a different phrase. Saving faith is shown by a life that values and obeys the commands of Christ. I'll say it again. Saving faith is shown by a life that values and obeys the commands of Christ. Let me break this out for you. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. He says, you can know that you're saved. You can know with pretty calm assurance that another person who professes faith is a true Christian as well. He says, you can know it. Know there is gnosko. It's one of the 40 uses of the word know, K-N-O-W, in the epistle. It's in the perfect tense, which means it's a settled knowledge. And gnosko means to know by experience. I would just put it in this phrase. Gnosko was the Greek word to talk about knowing that you know. I know. You can say, I know. I know that. No, no, I know. It's, it's how we emphasize it with tone. Greek had a word for it. So it's really knowing that you know. And it's perfect. The perfect tense meant settled. It means something that you had as bedrock in your life. He says, you can know without a doubt you're saved. How do you know without a doubt you're saved? Are you keeping his commands? What does it mean to keep a command? Another interesting Greek word. It meant to guard a treasure. It meant to highly value. So it's not just obeying. It's how you look at the commands of Christ. It's also in the present active indicative in the Greek, which means it's your lifestyle. What he's trying to say here is that when you come to Christ, a new principle of life comes into who you are that makes you love what God says and what God wants you to do. You suddenly love it. You suddenly treasure it. You suddenly want to know it. You suddenly know in your heart you ought to do it. And that's not just a one-time deal the night you get saved. It begins to emerge every day that you're saved and every, every year of your life And you be, because it's present tense. You're a person that comes to treasure the word of God and the call of God in your life. Not perfectly, but progressively. Now you see a difference. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, put it in Old English. He said, the knowledge of God is efficacious. Isn't that throw your heart right there? I'll put it in new knowledge. Coming to know the living God ought to make a living change in you. Let me repeat that. What old Calvin was saying is, listen, listen, if you say, I I know the Lord, I, I know the Lord. You have come to know the living God. He's come into your being. He has transformed your spirit. He has turned you from darkness to light. You've repented from your idolatry and your kingship to his kingship. If you meet the living God in that living way, then that ought to make a living change or you're just a living liar. I don't want to take it any farther than that. I've run out of L's. That's what he's saying. We never ask that question today. John asks that question all the time. 
The principle is a saving faith is shown by a life that values and obeys the commands of Christ. Keep means to treasure, to cherish, to honor. And it's in the present tense. It means that's your life. So you've begun to understand the truth. You you develop a love for truth. You develop a care for the honor of God. And you you develop a desire to honor him in, in your life and see him honored in the lives of others. You have an increasing desire to conform yourself to the image of Christ. And you have a deep concern when God's word is not honored. That's what a Christian looks like. It's not somebody that happened to me at a certain place in a certain time that checked a certain box on a certain card. That's a decider and may not be a disciple. And John heard this, and he passed it on. See, see, this was a dominating factor in John's life. Where was the first time John ever heard this teaching? Because it's not unique to him. John said, listen, in chapter 1, remember, we, he, I was with him from the beginning, chapter 1 John 1, 1. I heard him. I saw him with my eyes. I looked upon him. I touched the shoulders of the Lord Jesus. I was with him for three years of glory, and everything he heard impacted my life. And one night, as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and to show what it's like to obey the commands of the Father, he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the first place John heard this 60 years before. And it impacted him so much that night. And the next day when he stood at the foot of the cross and saw Jesus living out his own command, he never forgot it. He never forgot that Jesus said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, treasures them, loves them, honors them, is the one who loves me. Jesus is implying, if you have my commandments and you don't, you may not love me. Oh, he who keeps, has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus also said, by the way, this is not just my teaching. This is what the father himself has taught me. The throne room of God. That's what it means to be one of his. And notice he said commandments in verse three and verse four. Jesus did not give a set of principles that you can take or leave. He did not, in his teaching, give you a list of affirmations that you can use when you need to be built up or you need the latest aspect of your personal life to be affirmed. He did not give a set of seminar notes, for God's sake, that you can use to build up your already wonderful life. No, he gave commandments by which you're to slay sin and honor the Savior. Oh, what, what have we done to the teaching of Jesus? Belief is the basis of assurance, but it is revealed by behavior. Saving faith is shown by a life that values and obeys the commands of Jesus Christ. So John gives the principle in verse 3 quickly. He then gives you two possibilities, verse 4 and 5. Whoever says, it's a hypothetical, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. John never went to that little class about how to speak kindly into the different temperaments of people. I wonder what his enneagram would be. (laughs) If they have a category for that. This is the son of thunder, as he was called in his younger days. 
But you know what it is? This is the son of thunder under the power of the Spirit. John is under the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God says to you in 1 John 2, 4, if you say you know me, but you do not keep my commandments, you're a liar too. It means you're not saved. Because the truth is not in you. The truth about what? The truth about salvation. You may indeed be a false believer. And you take a look at the big, big distance between what Christians in our culture say and how they live, what they believe about the Bible. There's a massive disconnect that's gone on in American Christianity. I think there's a lot of room for believing that a lot of professing believers are not possessing believers. John would see the same thing. See, there's two possibilities. One is you're professing but not possessing, and that's the first one in John 4, for 1 John 2, 4. He says, I know, oh, I know the Lord, but he says, do not keep. By the way, the Greek is strongly disconnected, but does not in any way keep his commandments. You know this is a person that's not living a Christian life at all, and they never have. They're lying. So they're professing but not possessing. What's the other possibility? Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That's a person who is professing and indeed possessing. Whoever keeps it, keep, by the way, that's the third time in this passage, he says treasure and obey the word. That's what a Christian is. They believed in the gospel and they demonstrate a treasuring spirit and a keeping spirit to the word of God. He says, if you're this kind of a person and you, the love of God is perfected, that does not mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Perfect there means to achieve its goal. In other words, what's the goal of God in your life? What's God's purpose for your life? Is it to give you your best life now? No, sorry. Is it to provide abundance? Is it to uh, affirm you in whatever you're doing? Is it to obey the power of your words? None of that gobbledygook is true. His purpose is to shape in you someone who loves him as much as his son loves him. What's the father's purpose? What does he delight in more than anything else? He delights in the son. S-O-N. And his purpose is to make you as much like the son as is eternally possible. And the more you reflect his word and love his word and obey his word, who do you look like? The son. In that sense, his plan and love in your life is perfected. So those are the possibilities, folks. And then just top it off like a good preacher, he gives you an illustration at the end. That's called the portrait. Verse 6. By this we may know that we are in him, my Bible has a colon there. In other words, he's going to explain, he's going to illustrate what does a person look like that really does know God? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way. Portrait. You know what? You want to know if a person is truly saved? Do they look more and more like Jesus in the way they live their life? I'll say it again. He's saying, do you, the bottom line, do you want to know if a person is truly saved? What have they believed and how are they living? Do they look more and more like Jesus in the way they live their life? They walk in the same way. Walk is the Greek context, a Greek way of saying lifestyle. What do they do every day? What do they believe? How do they live? What do people know about them? Do they look more and more like Jesus in the way they live their life? Not perfectly, 
but intentionally, progressively, undeniably. Because that's what Jesus was all about. He said in John 8, 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So, assurance. How do you know that you know? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, you believe the gospel. You understand you're a sinner, and from the heart, your deepest longings, having trusted in Christ as Savior, are to obey the precepts of Christ and to live the way he lived, to walk the way he walked. Therein lies knowing that you know. You say, well, I think that's me. But you know, pastor, I've really failed lately in some spiritual battles. My spiritual confidence is a little shaky. Well, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to his people back in the 1870s, and he had a great phrase. He said, there's no place like Calvary for creating confidence. In other words, take your spiritual confidence to the foot of the cross and know that Jesus paid for every one of your failures and his blood can renew you and cleanse you so that you can go on with him in confidence and know that you're pleasing to him. 